Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I'm really excited for this one. I like it a lot. Our guest this week is the legendary guitarist Lenny Kay. I think most people know Lenny from his partnership with Patti Smith. I mean, he's been there since the very beginning. I Not, not to take anything away from Patti or her artistry or poetry or wonderfulness. Lenny's her enabler. Lenny's the one who helps make the bring those visions and those instincts and those creative impulses to life. He's that guy. They've been side by side since day one. Now, he's a multi-hyphenate because he's also kind of a, well, he's a producer. He produced Suzanne Vega, Luca. He produced that. There's also James, Soul Asylum, Kristen Hirsch. He's also a bit of like a rock historian. He curated the Nuggets compilation that's legendary. Maybe you know that, maybe you don't, but that thing still is like a time capsule. And he created that way back in the day. He writes liner notes for like, and articles on, he's just one of the great rock minds. And that leads me to the fourth thing, which is he's also a writer. And he's written some books and recently published a new one called Lightning Striking. The book details 10 transformative moments in the creation of rock and roll. These moments are tied around cities and years. So for instance, there's Memphis in 1954. There's Liverpool in 1962. There's New York City in 1975. There's Seattle in 1991. And it details what's going on culturally and musically and creatively in that area that's giving rise to people like Elvis and Kurt Cobain and the Beatles and whatnot. The 77 or the 75 New York story is obviously very much his story, his and Patty's story and CBGB and stuff like that. I have a free copy of this book to give away. I will talk to a Patreon supporter. I'll talk about that at the end. But we also get in, so the first half of this conversation is pretty much all the book and the history of rock and roll. The second half of the conversation is his time with Patty, the creation of songs like this, Because of the Night, and Horses, the Horses album, and and their process. And was it, you know, how much of it was thought up on the spot, and how much of it was rehearsed, so much of it to me feels kind of extemporaneous, you know, Patty searching for something. And Lenny is the one who sort of empowers her to do that. I keep calling him, it occurred to me in this conversation that he's a tour guide. He's the, he is your tour guide through not just the history of rock as he sees it, but of creativity and good music and record collecting and Patty's music and everything else. I love this guy. He called me from his home in New York. Well, so first and foremost, Lenny, it's interesting. Whenever I read a book about music, and I read tons of them because I'm such a junkie, I always like to be listening to the music that I'm reading about while I'm listening while I'm reading. You know, in my headphones, right. I've got my iPod or whatever. And so I pull out lightning strikes, and within, I mean, it's clear to me in the first page or two that. <laughs> If I stop to look up every obscure reference, I uh, one of them I wanted to uh, Paul Williams and the Hucklebuckers. So <laughs> that's in like the first couple of sentences, and so I'm thinking, okay, well I've got to stop what I'm put the book down and read and look up Paul. And I'm finding every sentence has numerous people like that. And if I do it for everybody, I'm never going to finish this book. It's one of the most dense. <laughs> rock and roll history books I've ever seen. And I was wondering 
if everything that's in there is it, a lot of it feels like the off, off the top of your head because the intro you say you were born with rock and roll your life mirrors the history of rock true that i mean yeah and i listen to all those records and uh-huh. uh or performances or whatever i i have a certain obsessive thing i i love to find strange things and go down rabbit holes and and well, you're and, famous for and, this you know, I mean, I, it's just fascinating to me. So, um, and I have to say, if I mentioned it, it's probably an intriguing record that, you know, you need to drop into a conversation with a, <laughs> somebody else equally obsessive. But, you know, we're, I mean, we're also, let's be honest, we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of records that are not mentioned in the book. You know, uh, you, you can't be a completist. There's a lot of scenes in the book that, uh, you know, I couldn't get to. Um, so it's just like, you know, I try to give all the information, the denseness, as you refer to it, in a kind of friendly manner, as if Absolutely. we're hanging out at a record fair and you're standing next to me and you, you say to me, what is this Paul Williams in the Hucklebucks? And I say, man, that is a good record. He was the guy who, uh, you know, uh, compared the uh, Cleveland uh-huh. uh, riot. It's, uh, you know, there's endless fascinations and that's what I love about this music. You just can keep, you can go deep and deep and deep and still find something that amuses you. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the thing when I'm reading the book and I'm thinking, boy, I've got a lot of homework to do because, and I'm, you know, I'm younger than you. So it was, it was around the Detroit and obviously your chapter, New York, where I, my ears start perking up more because I know more of the references than I did on some of the earlier stuff, but I'm just... There is just so much to be had. So obviously, I mean, I think a natural question is how did you pare down these 10 years and cities and moments as the key 10? Well, I just stood on the mountaintop that is rock and roll Mm -hmm. and kind of looked at the soundscape and thought, when did things really change? What are those classic crossings of time and space that like change the music that that kind of evolved it and you know it wasn't that hard i mean actually uh you know you, i just like say okay yeah liverpool changed rock and roll of course um uh, you know philadelphia 1959 you may or may not appreciate the late great bobby rydell but the fact is is that it was definitely a marker of of how the music was perceived and disseminated New Orleans, you know, which to me was the most interesting chapter because I knew something about it, but it wasn't until I went there and uh, stood outside the Dew Drop Inn and walked into Cosmo Matassa's uh, studio, which is now uh, a laundromat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, imagine little Richard doing Tutti Frutti there. That, you know, it was, it, it was just amazing. I mean, we know those times when the channel shifted sometimes really quickly. You know, uh, when the Beatles came to America, all of a sudden the English invasion rendered an entire span of pop music somewhat old fashioned, you know, in the same way that when grunge happened, all of a sudden all the uh, L.A. sleaze metal bands. Yeah, some of them are obvious. Um, I you make a you make an argument that the birth of rock and roll could have happened in New Orleans. And I believe one of the reasons why it didn't or isn't seen as such is because it was largely African-American artists and white people weren't going to give them that kind of credit, sounds like. Well, also, I mean, to be honest, 
Elvis is a mutation. Yeah. Uh, there is nobody like Elvis. You know, there was Country Boogie. There was Rhythm and Blues. But Elvis was just some strange freak of nature that embodied all of it. So that's why I really begin there. It's, it's not really a racial thing because I think Elvis had a lot of black music within yeah, him. You know, maybe it was easier to get on the radio, but he was such a, a kind of force of of change and, and and a harbinger of something new as as sam phillips said you know hell that's different that's a pop <laughs> song now mm-hmm. and it's true you know because mm-hmm. you know there was pop elements to rhythm and blues pop elements to country boogie you know all of these scenes i mean elvis says as much bing crosby in him as anybody but he yeah. kind of gathered it in a locus of energy that happened in sun studios in memphis and it was just you know i mean that to me is where all of a sudden you know the savior is born yeah (laughs) you know whatever it is but yeah he he was a freak of nature i do believe that and as as a result all of a sudden his emergence on the scene in such a dynamic and and world-changing way let everybody know that this thing called rock and roll was going to be something entirely new. Yeah, I agree. When I think of Elvis, I think of also somebody like Prince, whose charisma is so electric that there is nothing else in the world that these two human beings could have done other than be rock stars. Exactly. Like prominent rock stars, not little garage guys. They had to be shift, you know, cultural changing icons because there you go. They're Every speck of their being is made up of this. Cultural shifting icons. That's really good. And, yeah. you know, I mean, the Beatles are also yes. like that. Yeah. That said, my book is not about the geniuses. No, my it's book not. It's really That's... about the seniuses, as Brian Eno said, that <laughs> these things come together. And yes, sometimes they're embodied by these charismatic artists who change the way the music is regarded and how it evolves but truly you know it 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 comes together out of this localized kind of cauldron of creativity where you know it's not just you know i mean elvis needed an audience and the audience was calling out for him he couldn't have done it on his own you know the beatles again you know crystallized a certain moment in time and then there was a whole wave behind them and and that's kind of amazing to see the San Francisco bands. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm like uh, just not even twenty when I start hearing about the ruckus at the Fillmore, but it seemed to me that there was a lot of energy. And unlike today, where you can sweep your fingers over a keyboard and see it, or you know, whatever, or some facsimile of it, really, what you're seeing, you know, I had to travel there to actually understand the energy and the and, and the kind of the, the the kind of moment in time where where this this music really seemed to you know launch itself yeah. into its own future yeah that's everything you just said especially about these chapters in the book expanding beyond the obvious like for instance i mean you know one of the it begins basically in memphis and so mentally as i'm sitting down to read the book i'm thinking okay we're going to read a chapter on elvis but it's not it's about the knuckle the hucklebucks or whatever it's about <laughs> everything that's the magic of Lenny Kay and why you, the, 
what you've brought to the world with the nuggets and everything else you've done in your career is so valuable because it's not just about the icon. It's about all the little guys that are feeding, that are propping up this icon, making it, a, making them, giving them their moment is built on the backs of the Hucklebucks and everybody else that was Absolutely. also doing something. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you use the right analogy, the divine nuggets, 50 years old this year, which is wow. crazy. <laughs> if I knew wow. I would be talking about nuggets half a century in the future, I would have definitely been very <laughs> self-conscious and screwed it up. But I was just having a good time with my favorite records. Yeah, it's like up the nuggets. I mean, yeah. none of those groups were really, you know, superstars. But that's the that's the kind of creativity that that I look for. Those underneath, those wild cards, those uh, you know, people who are just like caught up in the moment, not really sure what they're doing. Sometimes they do it great. Sometimes they don't. You know, but that that kind of cultural stew pot is really what you know kind of rises these these artists to to mega status and so they begin to represent each scene mm -hmm. and of course by that time the scene is kind of over you know it's it's gotten it's gotten a name whether it be uh, punk or you know british invasion or something you know but but and then it becomes defined and then it becomes rigid and its own stereotype and then it's time for something new Mm -hmm. It's true. I wondered, um, well, first and foremost, one thing, uh, another thing, and maybe I knew this, but I had never thought of it in terms of the way you said it because of your great wording. When I was reading about Elvis specifically, you were saying about how Sam Phillips, and I've been to Graceland and to Sun Studios and done the tours and everything. It's great. How Sam Phillips' original idea was to promote and put out blues records. I think, I think if I remember right, Lightning Hopkins to Sam is still like the best person he ever got in yeah, business I, with. I think it's Howling Wolf, actually. Oh, he, Howling Wolf. That, that's he, right. He, yes. he, he thought that was the most primal force yes. of anything. That's right. But he realized that there was a lot of people mining that territory, including his competitors, Modern and Chess and... You know, and then Chess was stealing his artists. I mean, they gave Howling Wolf uh, $3,000 in a new car. And, you know, all of a sudden he's in Chicago. And Who's going to pass that up? Figuring, what? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> what happened? Right. But, you know, he kept looking for the new sound. I really do believe that. And, you know, I mean, and again, all of these scenes, everybody's looking for a new sound, whether it's it's understood or not i mean i always think with cbgb uh the bands were only punk and sensibility you know they uh, if you Very looked true. at the, the the top five bands say you know uh, blondie and ramones and television and us and talking you know, heads still in your favorite one yeah, after that right you know um they were all different tom verlaine once said that each was like its own idea and then, of course, when it kind of migrated over to England, it became very stylized, which is, of course, kind of a cool thing, too. You know, it became punk with a capital P. It had a very rigid superstructure. And, you know, and at that moment in time, you know that punk will soon make way for new wave. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very true. Um, okay, so I have tons of questions about that. I was wondering, as you're growing up, and you're witnessing these first few chapters. Obviously, the New York chapter is almost your own biography in a lot of ways. 
but the earlier chapters, I mean, are you, are you traveling along this same musical highway with these people in real time? I mean, are you watching Elvis and, you know, um, screaming Jay Hawkins and Fats Domino and the San Francisco crowd and just thinking, I could do that. I mean, is that feeding? Because you're you're known for being a little bit of everything. You're the musician, <laughs> you're the writer, you're the journalist, you're the whatever. And so are you couching a glimpse of a life you want in these people as you're growing up with them? I just remember the first time I heard Little Richard on the radio mm. and it released something in me that was alchemical. All of a sudden I'm rolling on the floor. I'd never seen anything. I'd never heard anything like this. My sister and I are in our Brooklyn apartment and we're just laughing because he's so crazy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I didn't really understand that I would be a part of it. I just know that I wanted some of that energy for myself. And it took me a while to figure out how to become that music. But, and of course, who knew? I mean, if I hadn't met Patty at, at, at a, you know, a, a moment in my life, I, you know, who knows what would have happened um, another time and place. But, you know, you see the energy, you see that, you know, probably by the, t you know, I, I, I formed a band within weeks after seeing the Beatles. Uh, I knew that I wanted to be that. I had to learn how to do it. So it was my own song. But really, I mean, I, I like to think of myself as a minor character. In my book, I'm responding to what I'm hearing. I'm there. If I'm an eyewitness, I, I tell how it how it struck me, which is kind of an interesting way to tell one's own story without making it about me. Yeah. It's about this book is about the music. That's what I bend the knee to, and which has given me inspiration and and innovation and a sense of all of this. That is a possibility. I see that in the Nuggets bands too. You know, they there was a yearning there, and they were trying to convert that sense of desire and becoming into who they could be. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, so if if I'm there, I'll tell how it seemed to me because I'm as much of an audience as anybody. I'm. Yeah. I, I I love to be in the front row. You know, urging the band on and waving my hand, and you know letting them know that I appreciate them. But on the other hand, I know what it's like to be up on that stage and feel the energy of the audience. Um, it's definitely a two-way street. And I, I like, you know, I celebrate it in, in writing. I celebrate it in playing music. I celebrate it as a fan mostly because, you know, you will see me when there's a record fair somewhere in the uh, <laughs> in the uh, two-hour radius of where I live, where I'll just go there and smoke a joint on the parking lot and go there and wander in the fields of the Lord. And, yes. you know, you never can tell what you might find. Um, at this point, I really don't need any more records. But <laughs> on the other hand, I just like to find stuff, you know, because it's all out there. The best. And, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And, yeah. I feel very privileged to have my life unfold within the realm of music because yeah. as, as you must, I mean, you know, what do we do? We listen to music. We talk about it. We, we obsess about it and we find it, how it reflects our own personality. That's it. That's exactly it. 
Um, and that's the, that's the beauty of the book is that you're the tour guide for this, you know, span of this, this guy, this tour through rock history. It's seen through your eyes. You're the one directing us where we're going to go and what we should look at and stuff. And that's why it's magical. One thing I wondered about with the nuggets. So I, um, I discovered you and Patty and the nuggets all at the same time. I was, uh, <laughs> I was 14 years old. I've talked about this many times on the show. In 1987, Rolling Stone magazine hits its 20th anniversary, and it puts out its issue on the 100 greatest albums of all time. And Horses is on there, and Nuggets is on there. And I'd never heard of either one, and I'm 14 years old. And that is that was the one of the most life-changing events of my life, because I'm seeing television's Marky Moon on here. I'm seeing Raw Power on there, which I still don't know why, know why it wasn't Funhouse instead of Raw Power, but whatever. And, <laughs> I would agree, to be honest. <laughs> yes. And, you know, everything. And I'm I'm growing up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm a huge Bowie wow. fan. And I'm the only person I know who likes Bowie. And he's in there twice. And that validates my inkling and my interests in music. So that's when I got turned on to you and the nuggets. And I was one. So after the fact, a lot of those nuggets songs are songs you hear now out in the wild. You see that you hear them in movies or on commercials. And I'm wondering, do like, does the click five send Lenny K a Christmas card and just thank him for like keeping the flame a lit because they should, if they don't. Well, well, I have met many of the nuggets bands and they're really grateful to be remembered. Yeah. I mean, let, let's remember that I did that record perhaps four or five years after all those bands had their True. quasi hit. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I thought all the, the songs on there were so different, yeah. you know, and now I kind of see, you know, garage rock as uh -huh. a term hadn't been invented yet. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're part of our common vocabulary, all these songs. And you know, the Nuggets is stylistically all over the place. My brief from Jack Holzman was just to find those tracks on albums that might have been overlooked. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that uh, in November for Black Friday Record Store Day, Rhino is working on a five LP box set of uh, what the first two LPs would be um, the original. Uh -huh. The next two LPs would be my thoughts on what volume two would have been which didn't happen and then the fifth is called cast-offs where as i developed the nuggets idea i you know i had just a million ideas you know uh, maybe jeff beck's hi-ho silver lining should be on it or wayne cochran's going back to miami just records that were my favorites mm -hmm. so it's going to be kind of the the uh, the records that kind of got left by the wayside. Mm -hmm. I hope you have a nice book. And I, I sent, just sent them the original manuscript of my liner notes, which I actually could find in this mess of a, a basement that I have. And, uh, you know, it should be a beautiful package. But, you know, I mean, again, I didn't have any perspective. Uh, the fact that we're talking about this album half a century in the future is kind of amazing. I mean, it was it's an oldies album. Let's be honest. It was kind of my combination of those albums they would sell on TV with motorcycle hoodlums on the front cover. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, greatest gold golden goodies, mm -hmm. along with uh, Yazoo Blues records. You know, Blues of Southeast Georgia, mm -hmm. nineteen thirty three to nineteen thirty seven. So it kind of you know the pop and the uh, and the academic 
But really, I mean, it's it's just amazing that it continues to live on. And yes, buy me beers all across mm-hmm. the world. <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it does. Oh my god, that's great. They must. I mean, they you kept their you kept their lives going. I would think in a lot of ways, and um, that's that's one of your. I think you said in an interview somewhere that I read that that and P- Patty are going to be what's on your tombstone. You know, yeah, yeah, I think so, but I don't know. I haven't, you know, maybe they'll put lightning striking on this. Hopefully, on hopefully, you know, yeah, but I mean, you know, you just do your work, really. Um, you know, I, I just, I mean, I, I like to, as I like to say, I like to see that my favorite records keep on living, yeah. and you know, just like now, all your listeners are going to be going out and digging Paul Williams and the Hucklebuckers. You know, it, it, you, you got to bring the, it's like the Mexican day of the dead. You know, as long as you're talking about it, it's still alive. That's very and true. So I'm happy to uh, kind of wave the flag for these lost records. And again, you know, I think it's not just garage records. You know, every, I'll be at a record store or record fair and somebody will come up to me and say, man, you got to hear this garage record. It's just a great garage record. And I listen to it, and it's a great garage record. Mm-hmm. You know, Fuzz Tone, you know, Yowling lead singer, Farfisa Organ. But is it a great record? Mm-hmm. And to me, one of the things, the underlying things that have kept Nuggets alive is the fact that they're all great records. Mm-hmm. Walk Talk, and, uh, you know, is a great record. Um, I, I mean, they're, they're fantastic. They're not generic. And yeah. to me... There's a lot of great generic, just like in you know when punk got into hardened into a style. There's a lot of great punk records, but are they Anarchy in the UK, which is an undeniably great record? Absolutely, absolutely. I wondered if there was a period that didn't make the final cut of the book. If there was um, a, there are some sections that I, I'm not trying to be critical. There were a couple of things where I thought, oh, I thought I would hear more. Like I thought I'd hear more about Motown. And there's Motown in there, but there's not like a section on Motown or Motown. I mean, again, it's my perspective and how it and how it affected me as a musician and a fan. I mean, we all love Motown. There's many, many, many books about Motown, but Motown is not in a weird way, a local label. Motown was meant for the sound of young America. Mm. It was all out there. And, you know, I mean, I was mostly influenced as a musician and a writer by the Stooges, the MC5 and all those high energy bands. That was my particular take on on how the cities, you know, I mean, yeah, Motown is actually pop records and also, you know, R&B in a certain way. I'm pretty rock and roll centric. Yeah, I know. You know, if I I, there were things that I considered. in the original proposal, I wanted to do a chapter about the early 80s alt-rock with uh, Athens, with R.E.M. and B-52s and all those bands, mm-hmm. and uh, and combine it with Minneapolis to do uh, the replacements, Husker Du, mm-hmm. Soul Asylum. Uh, I thought that was a very foundational scene, especially at, at, at that moment in time, the concept of, I guess, college rock, whatever right. that is. I also wanted to end the book, not in Seattle, but I wanted to end it in Manchester in the mid nineties mm. when the music has a certain dance quality that uh, seemed to point the way to the future. Uh, you know, I would have liked to have gone to that Bronx playground where cool Herc 
was spinning records and yakking over them. Mm. My personal favorite, Kingston, Jamaica. Well, mm. you know, I would have loved to have done a chapter. But of course, some of these are books themselves. True. Good point. I, 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 early on, I realized if I wanted to finish this book <laughs> within the six deadlines, I kind of blew past <laughs> 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 that I really needed to concentrate on the essentials. And I believe that in terms of an itinerary that shows the evolution and development of this music we call rock and roll, that these are the high points. Yeah. You know, you, you just look over the, uh, the map and, you know, you're, it's like going on a cruise. Yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah, stop in Memphis and hang out there. And that's how I, that's how I kind of regarded it. I, I was on a trip and, you know, instead of being on it with a band where you leave there <laughs> within a, a day and maybe get a, you know, half an hour before sound check to quickly cruise around, you know, I, I just kind of moved in there for the six months yeah. each of the ch chapters took, just immersed myself in the music, found all the kind of oddball characters and, and the lines of creative force that made each of these scenes positive energy mm -hmm. and uh you know then moved on once once i, I wrote it very linearly um i think the first I, I have to do a sample chapter in books so i did philadelphia which i thought was going to be easiest but of course you get into the details of, of dick clark and payola yes. and, and the creation of the teen idol which is so so trenchant to that moment in time and then i worked backwards and just started you know one after another mm -hmm. and uh by the time i got to the end of it and you know there i am standing on a stage yeah. in uh, seattle uh our show canceled the pandemic on the horizon and i'm kind of giving it one last hurrah before we're all closed down and i thought yeah I, i've told the story of this music called rock and roll yeah i um it was I had this in my notes and I forgot to get to it. It was interesting. The the Seattle chapter, I started reading it. And while I'm reading it, I'm just thinking, it's so sad to me how many of these people are gone and not oh with us God. anymore. And yeah. I read about the first half of the chapter that night, Taylor Hawkins dies. And right. the next day I read the second half of the chapter. And I'm just thinking, since you've written the book, there's Taylor, there's Mark Lanigan. He's not with right. us anymore. I don't know for sure. I'm guessing both of these were were drug related. We don't know yet. I don't think, um, but it just was so sad to me. These guys like Chris Cornell and and Andy Wood are who are making such incredible, impactful stuff, and they can't hold it together emotionally enough to to live a life with people loving them, you know, forever. Well, you know, that's in, in a weird way. Sometimes that's where creative wellsprings come from. Exactly. You're trying to heal pain within yourself. Who Who is more in terms of the Seattle chapter than, than Kurt Cobain, who yeah. had it everything, a beautiful yeah. daughter, worldwide infamy, you know, that he, he wanted but didn't want. You know, I always think of that line from All Apologies. I wish I was like you easily amused well i am easily amused you know i'll go upstairs after we talk and uh, do one of those things where i'll go up to uh, the wall of records and i'll close my eyes and pull one out and say well i've been listening to this in you know 35 years <laughs> and uh, and kind of uh, amuse myself but yeah i believe art especially creative art comes from sometimes emotional pain and 
it's it's a dangerous thing where all of a sudden if you become your art then you you know you can't remove it from you and get a certain emotional distance yeah. you know it's very sad i mean with patty and myself yeah there's so many temptations on the rock and roll world mm-hmm. you know you just you, you go out there people adore you they're throwing all, all manner of intoxicants your way all manner of of temptation and one of the things I'm always grateful about is that, you know, no matter how much I like to dance to White Wedding at 3.30 in the morning, and I do, <laughs> I like to get up the next day yeah. and do my work. That, that's what centers me. That's what centers Patty. We're, we're, we don't want to throw away the gifts that we've been given uh, just because, you know, I mean, all the chapters have sadness. Janis Joplin. Good point. You know, I yeah. mean, this this is not something that is new in any creative field, but you know, especially in in Seattle, where, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't think Mark Lanigan died of a drug overdose, but he he could have, yeah, hundreds of times, and yeah. you know, weakened his immune system to yes. the point where when he got COVID and got a horrendous version of it, mm-hmm. he couldn't fight it off. I'm Is that really, what it was? Did he die of COVID? I don't. Yes. I don't know if I. And he oh, was wow. in a coma, and you know, I mean, but yeah, his his story, you know, uh, is just like how crazy can you get? Lane Staley, yeah. I mean, one after another. Chris Cornell, what yeah. a voice! What an incredible voice! What an incredible band! I have to say, yeah. doing the Seattle chapter when I was listening, I I, I never had never given Soundgarden as much credit i like their songs and you know, nothing against them you know but Same. diving deep into their ovule mm-hmm. uh man awesome band kim thile you know yeah. matt cameron incredible drummer kim on the guitar uh it's you know it was fun for me to discover and and one of the reasons i like to write and take on a task is discovery i mean uh in the 90s i wrote a book on the uh crooners of the mm-hmm. early 1930s called you call it madness the <clears throat> sensuous song of the croon because i heard on the radio on a left-handed dial you know through the static the story of russ colombo who was killed in a dueling pistol accident mm-hmm. was supposed to marry carol lombard who always referred to her him as her great love Sorry, Clark Gable. <laughs> and uh, after he died, his mother had a heart condition and was blind. So they wrote letters from, quote, all over the world to her. And uh, you know, I'm hearing this story and I'm thinking, who the heck was this guy? And if in like, I guess it was 95 or something, the Internet was as ubiquitous as it is now, I would have gone on the next morning. Oh, Russ Colombo, interesting tale, forgotten about it. But since I couldn't do that. I went up to the library to the date of his death, September 2nd, 1934, pulled up the Daily Mirror from New York, which, of course, is so amazing on the on the microfilm. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I have a rabbit hole Mm -hmm. that, you know, expanded into a meditation on singing in the moments when the microphone was first invented and how that changed immeasurably the way the human voice could be captured most especially with Bing Crosby. And of course, it's unfortunate that these days we just think of him as a grandfather. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and not very sensual, but early Bing Crosby with those big blue eyes and, you know, taking black rhythms and moving it into uh, popular music. I mean, it was a fascinating journey. And I, I have it. to say, uh, you know, part of it for me is learning as I go. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, seeing, a, you know, s- seeing a topic and how far down I can go. Yeah. You know, how, how deep I can and how, what it means to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the pleasures of writing. That's your gift to us. Your Thanks. curiosity. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's true. Your curiosity and documenting it is your gift to all of us, along with the music and everything else, too. Like I said, you're the tour guide. We get to see what what is exciting Lenny Kay and take it on for ourselves. So no, it's, it's, it's good for me. I mean, really, I, I, I like. I like finding out about things. I've wandered all the musics over my life. You know, I've had a bebop period where I always thought, oh, Charlie Parker. Yeah, he's a genius. I didn't know why. <laughs> but then I found a, a pianist named Dodo Marmorosa, who recorded with Charlie in uh, California in the mid 40s. And that's hooky. That's really cool. And all of a sudden, the door opened and suddenly I got what those guys were doing, what it must have been like on West 52nd street in 1948, when all this energy happened, it was kind of like, you know, you could just tell that they were excited about the new harmonic possibilities and, and how to get them out into the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you know, this, this happens all the time. And, uh, I really, uh, I'm just very grateful that I have an opportunity to kind of, you know, wander Mm -hmm. from music to music, listen to Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, and understanding who they were, their breakthroughs, their pioneering, and it was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What will be next? That's my question. I know. That's always what's next. What's the next obsession? I'm I'm glad we've talked about jazz because that, to me is what the magic of you and Patty, especially in those early days were. one thing that struck out that stuck out to me in the book and in your chapter. And I don't, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but you were alluding to you guys rehearsing. And you may have even said something like we rehearsed and rehearsed as if to imply there was a lot of rehearsal. And that, that struck me because I, I was just trying to imagine what is the rehearsal like when it's patty smith who the feeling you get you know this when you listen to those albums is patty going off she's found some extra layer of consciousness and she's going there and you're following her along you're following along trying to find some music that fits the moment and sounds right and elevates what she's saying and she's elevating what you're doing and i'm imagine when you alluded to rehearsal and I just thought, what what must those rehearsals have been like? Are they finding, is Patty finding, I don't know, tangents that work? Are you finding music that works to the tangents? Describe to me what a what a rehearsal with Patty Smith at that time looks like. Well, so, so much of it was due to Richard Soule, our pianist at the time. Mm, that makes sense. He was an incredibly trained keyboardist playing, uh, you know, 
Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, when he was uh, still not in double figures. He had all this incredible technique. He was what is known as an accompanist. You know, you, you go to, uh, you know, a cabaret and he's accompanying and adding and subtracting. And I'm kind of rhythmic. And we're just like playing these songs and Patty is exploring them. And we're trying to, as I like to say, breathe with her. Mm. I mean, the first time Patty and I played together was in February of 1971 uh, at St. Mark's, uh, church doing a poetry reading, which was essentially her chanting her poetry and me kind of uh, rhythmically emphasizing it. We didn't do it again until late 1973. It wasn't meant to be a band. And we never thought we would have a band. Mm -hmm. It was always like this kind of strange performance art. Mm -hmm. And as we performed, we would find these songs that we would call fields. Uh, Land of a Thousand Dances, for instance, where we're just kind of like cycling chords and you know, dynamics, you know, rising with her voice, then, then, you know, bringing it back. And, you know, then she would ride on that, not really understanding what we were doing, except the audience was intrigued. Mm -hmm. And as we developed it further, added Ivan Kral, eventually added J.D. Dougherty as our drummer. Uh, when we had a rock and roll band, which by now was like middle 75, I mean, I think JD joined up in June of 75. We sounded like ourselves. It wasn't like, hey, man, let's have a rock and roll band so we can sound like another 20 rock and roll bands that are playing downtown New York. And we always would try to keep that unique. One of the things we always wanted was to have freedom of movement. We wanted to do a three-minute pop song mm -hmm. uh, with a chorus and a vocal harmony. Uh, we wanted to do a field of noise uh, derived from free jazz. Uh, and everything in between. And luckily, Patty has these many manifestations within her. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's just remarkable to see, like I always say, I've never seen her sing a false note. She is always completely present mm -hmm. when she's singing, trying to make each night its own unique being. Uh, she is the real deal. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Again, it's it's just a question of sensitivity. I mean, really, we would, when we auditioned for uh, another guitar player, which eventually was Ivan Kral, we would just have these, you know, we put an ad in the Village Voice, <laughs> got like 50 people coming up, you know, with their amps and whatever. And, you know, we'd play for two minutes and they'd be out the door. They would like, ah, this is too weird. But we would just play and see what, what they added. And you know, the nice thing about Ivan is that he expanded our sound without changing it. You know, we don't want to be a blues band. We didn't want someone who's just going to weedly, weedly solo. Sure. Um, so what was it like? You know, we would just go up to the practice room, which was uh, on Times Square behind the huge billboard. I think it was uh, 46th Street, uh, a room down the hall from where our manager, Jane Friedman, had her PR office. And we just go there and, you know, sit around and try on this song, and try on that song. And, mm -hmm. You know, does this work? Does that work? Uh, you know, have a good time. But mostly it it came together when we played live. Yeah. Because that's, that's when you imagine. can ride all these mood swings and see yourself reflected in the mirror of an audience. Good point. I, so I have a question about some specific moments and specific songs. I was listening back to Poppies on Radio Ethiopia to get... <laughs> 
patiently prove with a finger that it's a soaky and spread with butter and the flowers on the average and then they laid her on the table she connected with the inhaler and the needle was shifting like crazy she was um she was completely still it was like a painting of a vase she just lay there and the gas traveled fast through the dorsal spine and down and around the anal cavity her cranium <laughs> it was really great man the gas had inflicted her entire spine with the elements of a voluptuous disease the green there's that moment when she starts talking about anal cat the girl's anal cavity and it's almost like she stops for a minute and thinks do I really want to go down this road about anal cavities and she kind of laughs for a second and that's left in the song and I was when I listen to that and I think what's going on there did they did they rehearse anal cavities and the laugh <laughs> or was that was that no, a it wasn't rehearsed. Thing? I okay, actually remember I that song it's a song I wish we still played it's a Richard Soul song and of course okay. Richard is no longer on this planet and we miss him terribly but that was just Patty going out and and riffing on on DNV's beautiful uh keyboard melodies um a lot of us you know I mean we've always had like specific structured songs that have you know, moves. Sometimes the moves have come out while we're playing them. I mean, with Gloria, we never said, well, let's go uh, uh, right here. It's just, we played it four times and then it always kind of happened at the same time. So it got integrated into the arrangement very organically, which is kind of great. Yeah. lot of the more improvised stuff uh just happens yeah. we've always wanted a, a combination of the two uh with horses we we had uh structure for redondo beach we had structure for kimberly but we also wanted to have moments where we went in the studio and had a starting point and see where it wound up and you know john kale who i think 
had a more structured album in mind. He was in his Beach Boys phase. <laughs> you know, he, he kept saying, well, if you want to do something live, you better get it out there. You had a really live. And with Birdland, to me, which is the song that truly blossomed in the studio, yeah. started out as a three or four minute poem. Uh, you know, he kept bugging us to, you know, get it out there, which was one of our favorite concepts, the out there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, around the six minute or seven minute mark, we thought we had one that was good. But he kept pushing us and pushing us. And pretty soon we crossed the nine, nine minute meridian and had the version that's completely live on uh, on, on horses. father died. We left him a little farm in New England. All the long black funeral cars left the scene and the boys just standing there alone, looking at the shiny red tractor. Him and his daddy used to sit inside and circle the blue fields and grease the night. As if someone had spread butter on all the fine points of the stars, because when he looked up, they started to slip. And he put his head in the crooks of his arms and he started to drift, drift to Again, with land, we had a starting point, and Patty was was uh, you know doing her her talking, and then you can hear at one point she goes build it, build it, because she's giving us instruction, and then then she goes in and overdubs some more improvisation. I don't think we could ever 
replicate that mix. Yeah. Not, not that we would want to, but I mean, you know, we just mixed it live. It wasn't like, yeah, you know, Pro Tools or whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's so I, I like to think that we have these worlds within us. And, uh, you know, we've gone back and forth. We have uh, very set, you know, in our last album, uh, Banga. Uh, I love there's that a album. Long track. Yeah. I, I think it's just really it's it. kind of so good. We, <laughs> we, you know, we've kind of said pretty much what we need to say. I can see that. But uh, the radio, uh, the uh, Constantine's Dream, mm -hmm. you know, we, I worked on the track of it for a long time, you know, uh, moving this forward here, taking it to uh, Italy to have uh, Casso Vento, the Italian band with the accordion and everything, kind of play along with six tracks and steal this from this and provided like a kind of bed. And she went out there and of course we've been walking around all these towns like uh, Arezzo, uh, you know, and talking about St. Francis I mean, you know, and all the elements and the, Christopher Columbus and the and the uh, the the climate crisis, you know, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, then Patty went out there and she had this kind of landscape to improvise on, and she went out there, she did the song twice. We used the second half of the first take, first half of the second take. That was it. Wow, you know. So I dreamed a dream of St. Francis who kneeled and prayed for the birds and the beasts and all humankind. silence of my room, stepping down the ancient stones washed with dawn, and entered the basilica that bore his name. Signor, Seeing his effigy, I bowed my head, and my racing heart I gave to him. You do what you need to do. It should always be an adventure. It should always be different. I believe songs have need a reason to exist. You're not just going to write a bunch of, okay, here's our new batch of songs. They need to have a purpose because there's a lot of songs out there. Yeah. And so if you want to find your song, you have to make sure that there's a need for it to be heard in the universe. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're not just, you know, okay, it's time for a new record. Uh, yeah. What kind of riffs you got? Right. You know, we, we, we believe we don't have a large, you know, discography uh, given how long we've been together, because we believe that ex each record has a purpose, mm -hmm. has a theme, and has a, a way of being. And uh, I'm just happy, really, that people listen to it, they, they listen to our work, and seem to get inspiration. Yeah. I, I have a I have a little joke I like to say is that the the front row 
the females in the front row, they haven't gotten any older <laughs> since the 70s. I have, so I look at them a little different. But <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, but but she she is an inspirational icon. And even to me, I mean, really, she will always push me to go as far as I can go and then take that one step further. And it's made me a better musician and a better artist. Yeah. I, um, I've always been curious if, so Clive Davis signing to Arista feels like a kind of a, an odd move that and being produced by Jimmy Iovine, because these two are such pillars of commercial, but very tasteful rock and roll. I almost said corporate rock, but that, that, that that's not what I mean. But it's commercial. It, these things are going to sell millions of dollars. They know how to, Clive especially, I mean, I've had plenty of people on here who have told some horror stories about Clive, and I get that too. But did, when he signed you guys to Arista, did he have any idea what he was doing? Or was it just people in his ear saying, there's this hot thing going on, you need to be on board? One thing Clive Davis uh, told me, I had produced an, a female artist for him in the late uh, 1980s. Are we talking about Suzanne Vega? No, no, no. That was A&M. Oh, sorry. Uh, this okay. was Michelle Malone in Drag the oh, River. Got it. And uh, she came to New York to do a showcase, The Bottom Line. And she was kind of being too cool for school. You know, she didn't want to, like, confront the power of her art. And Clive came up to me after and he said, you know, I like to see artists who work and sweat. Mm. I think that's what attracted him to Patty. Mm. I think... He had a label that had Barry Manilow and Melissa Manchester, you know, Eric Carmen, very, very straight ahead, almost M.O.R. artists. And I, he likes Mavericks. He's, you know, and all we asked for was creative freedom. And all Clive really ever asked for when we would hand in a record is, can I have another rock song? Mm. You know, that's, that's how Summer Cannibals uh, got on. Uh, no, so, sorry, Gone Again, got on Gone Again, because okay. you know, he said we need one more rock song. So let's, you know, he went in and did the, the track gone again. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are people who are very wise. He all, you know, he signed Janis Joplin. I mean, mm -hmm. he understands renegade talents and gives them space to explore themselves. As for Jimmy Iovine, even though he's, uh, uh, you know, a massive honcho in the music business these days, when we worked with him, he'd never done an album. He was an engineer on mm. Bruce Springsteen's uh, um, "Born to Run." Yeah, he he. This was his first thing. He had a he had a fight. He had to go up to Clive and say, "I know I can do this," because he had no zero track record. Mm. And I have to say, Jimmy worked with us very hard day by day to kind of pull out, you know, who we are. Mm -hmm. um, I remember I was sitting in the uh recording room and i'm less you know i'm kind of stoned probably and mm -hmm. just recycling these chords and he comes out and he says wow keep it going that's that's a great chorus i said okay great and of course it turned out to be ghost dance which is not something you're going to hear on top 40 radio
then he was very wise. He got together a song that Bruce had left by the wayside for uh, what turned out to be Darkness at the Edge of Town. And he, he knew that Patty could sing the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. And so she did. And we had a real hit single. But again, Jimmy was not like the, uh, the, the, the mega business guy. In retrospect, that was his first sign of who he would be. And that's a beautiful thing. But really, in the end, you know, I mean, he was just, uh, you know, yeah. a, junior, a junior engineer at the record plant when he started working with us. So interesting, because when, on paper, when I see, when I think of Patti Smith Group, and I think of people like Clive and Jimmy, I think of people who would have a tendency to rub off the rough edges of a Patti, of what makes the Patti Smith Group so unique and special. Now, it doesn't necessarily come across that because Easter is a great album, you know, and as it, is you, Radio Ethiopia, which is our black sheep, you know, right. as is Wave. I mean, yes, you know, they, they all ha- are have different aspects of our yes, personality. Yeah. And and to me, that's what albums should be. It shouldn't be the last album sideways. Right. When I was a working record producer, I would only really want to do one record with with an artist, because if I do it good then they've learned uh, what I can offer them. With Suzanne Vega, I wound up doing two, but her entire situation had changed. And the first album, she was like a folk singer who was very wary of adding any overdubs uh, to her record to keep herself pure. And uh, by the second album, she had a band, a hard-hitting drummer, a great synthesizer player, and Anton Sanko, great bass player, uh, Mike Visiglia. And so the entire framework had changed. So then I could go in and provide continuity. Mm-hmm. And of course, we had uh, a mega hit single, which was so, so <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> that had to be a surprise, though, too. When you're recording and you're creating Luca, is anyone saying to you, oh, I hear, I hear a smash? It was an anthem. I mean, you have to, you know, its words are dark, but it's delivered in such an uplifting oh, way absolutely. that, uh, you know, you you get taken over by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was probably the deepest production on the record. I mean, that, that guitar solo was tripled. I kept mm-hmm. saying, <laughs> saying to John Gordon, 
come on, let's do it again. Let's keep them piled up. Right. Uh, you know, and then Suzanne, of course, went off and did a series of records, which are very unique, idiosyncratic, exploring all the many aspects of her musical personality. I mean, I think of, I think of someone like Patty or Suzanne as these artists that the culture calls for. Mm. You know, with Patty, you needed someone with that independence, that that sense of empowerment that you can see on that front cover photograph by Robert Maplethorpe. Suzanne came along at a time when everything was kind of somewhat cartoonish, larger than life, Twisted Sister, all the MTV bands. And so I believe the culture asked for somebody who brought it back down to a personal, intimate level. And, you know, whether if they came out with the same album this year, perhaps they, they would not be who they became. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's it's all time and place. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what I like. You know, you got the third dimension crossing with the fourth dimension. And that's that's that that makes it would Nirvana have been the mega sensation if they came out five years ago. Mm. You know, sometimes, again, the culture calls for yeah. a change of the channel, yeah. something new, something dare I say, transformative, something that makes you feel like you're living in a sense of progression. Yes. You know? and, and that's Perfectly how we sad. listen to music. You know, I mean, Perfectly you know, we listen to it in real time, in the present yeah. tense, you know, that, that moment where you hit a note and it's not the note that was before and it's not the note that comes after, but you're hearing that note. Mm-hmm. And that to me is... The magic of music you can't even really like stand back and contemplate it because it's happening in front of your ears mm-hmm. i wanted to ask if you're okay i wanted to i'm i had some questions about rock and roll nigger and not just because uh. it's a it, yes not just because it's kind of a lightning rod it's a you know I, I remember joe jackson has a song that's similar around that same era where to me i'm hearing people trying to sort of diffuse or unempower the word by spreading it around to white people and just whatever, anyone who's slightly rebellious. And I understand that. The thing I wanted to ask you about it though, is that you kind of take a solo in this song. voice is heard next to Patty's for a little while. And that wasn't happening before. What brought that on? Well, you know, we wrote the song together. Okay. I don't believe it's a racist, a racist song. No, I believe I don't it's an expression of solidarity with the underclass. 
and we're taking our position outside of society. I think that's an honorable position. And anybody who just looks at the pejorative aspects of the word is not listening to all the other words in the song. That said, it was also a product of a moment in time of rebellion. We do, we understand at this point that it has a charge that is probably not good for this moment in time. And so we no longer perform it live, you know, and, uh, I, I don't disown it. I just understand that there's a certain degree of hubris in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what can I do? This is, I like it. This is art, art made at mm-hmm. a moment in time when, you know, in the same way that when you do a reggae song, you're, you know, I felt like I was a Rastafarian, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, the words have power. I understand that, mm-hmm. but also you have to look at the context and what the meaning is. And, you know, yeah. it's, that's something I just wish people would do instead of just looking at the, at the, uh, obvious. They don't, they don't want to. Um, one thing that I, so as I said, I, I was always a big Bowie fan and I came to Patty later. There's a song on David Bowie's tonight album called dancing with the big boys that he does with Iggy. And it feels almost made up on the spot, similar to something Patty might've done. And he keeps, and Iggy says in there a few times outside of society. And when I heard rock and roll nigger years later, I'm realizing where that ad lib may have come from because to me, that's from a Iggy pop and David Bowie dancing with the big boys song. You know what I mean? Well, you, you know, we are, we are outside of society. About? When I yes. made my Lynn Cromwell single in 1966, there's a line in it, Crazy Like a Fox. It's There's a line in it called, uh, while they're working on the inside, I'm having fun on the outside. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's a good position for an artist to have. If you are too inside, you're not going to have a sense of, of either perspective or or turning the system upside down. And I believe that what we've been able to do over our many years is stay on the outside to not, you know, and, and not to just react, uh, you know, react and rebel against, you know, the inside, because we liked having a hit single. I don't think it's, it's, you know, but we want to have it on our own terms. Simple as that. Absolutely. Uh, we want to, we want to choose how we appear. And uh, we also want the freedom to be whoever we decide to be at any one moment in time. Agreed. Okay. So post Patty, you go on to join the Jim Carroll band, which right. makes so much sense because here you have another poet first. I, I think of any way as a guy who's a poet first musician, yeah. second, and you're working with it. Now the, the riffs are tighter. They're punkier. There's a couple of the songs, you know, go over five, six, seven minutes or whatever, but it feels more, you know, contained into like a ball of fire as opposed to this long chemtrail of heat. That's you playing guitar on People Who Died, right? Nope, nope. I I joined the band right at the end of the second album. Oh, Uh, I thought you you were both. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, I, I had written a song with Jim for a second album. It was called Still Life. Oh. 
Yeah. And uh, as soon as the album came out, his rhythm guitar player quit. And so I ran into him somewhere on the street and he says, oh, man, you know, like, hey, man, they, the guy quit on us. And I said, well, you know, I know yeah. how to play guitar. And, oh, all, you know, next thing I know, I'm up in uh, New England playing four shows in three days and, you know, trial by fire. Yeah. I, I, I've actually worked with a lot of poets. Uh, I, I did a record with Allen Ginsberg, Ballad of the Skeletons. You know, I have a literary gene within me and that's really important, <clears throat> especially for someone like Jim, who was a poet first, but also an incredible performer down on one knee. You know, we had stage divers. It was a different time. It was the early 80s. So, you know, the, the sensibility of hardcore uh, that tight. Well, I guess some hardcore is kind of messy, but <laughs> that sense of tight, you know, uh, you know, arrangement and really pushing it along. There's some great videos on YouTube of us at the 930 Club in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Man, we are just one heck of a tight band. Mm -hmm. And I love Jim. Uh, we were really very close friends. We were like brothers. And uh, Jim, I miss you more than all the others. And this song is for you, my brother. I, I st that chokes me up every time I hear it. it. Just the way he says that line, it it, I feel that so strongly. He was and I'm a not real even connected. emotional I'm, human. Yes. He was really heartfelt, emotional. And, you know, listening to uh, the records, man, they are beautiful. City drops into the night and, uh, you know, three sisters. So good. Wicked, 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 wicked gravity. I mean, you know, he had a California band at that time and they were really into precision, which was kind of good because it really suited Jim's lyrics. And like I said, he was an amazing performer. He was, he was just out there gripping the microphone with both hands and and delivering the word. And uh, it, it was great. And like I said, we had stage divers, so it was exciting. Yeah, All of a sudden, you know, these guys jumping up on stage and launching into the audience. It was one of my great. favorite. Uh, it was my favorite. Uh, that's fun. moments in time. I now I had never heard this before, but in getting ready to talk to you, I found a song of yours called Child Bride.
<laughs> and it's fantastic. Another PC, another PC uh, yeah. <laughs> you were on, you were on quite a, quite a train there. What is this? Were you intended to be a, your own solo performer at one point going punk? What's the deal? I, 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 you know, when Patty kind of left to go to Detroit to be with Fred, I thought this is my opportunity to be a solo performer. Child Bride was my first attempt. Then I, I worked the clubs in New York and also went out to California. I made an album called I've Got to Write. Um, I consider it my new wave period. It's a little. I can't thin. find it. It's not on Spotify or or. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think it ever got or... to digital. You know, it's, okay. uh, I'm sure there's some cuts on uh, the tube of you. But, uh, you know, I never really in those days, you know, I never really got the record deal that I'd hoped for. I, I, I wasn't that prepared, to be honest, after Patty left. I didn't have like, oh, I have a stockpile of songs. You know, I had to write them and also learn to lead a band, which is not as easy as it seems. Uh, but the Lenny K connection was kind of fun. And over the years, I've, I've you know, continued to write songs. One of the things I'm going to be doing um, uh, now that uh, my book is done uh, is I'm going to finish some of these songs that I have nice. partially. Uh, I don't, you know, just for the artistic closure of them. I like my songs, you know, but, you know, I don't really have any sense that I'm going to have a hit single or anything. Right. But I, you know, I put a lot of energy, all of them kind of mean something to me. And so I'm going to, you know, try to finish them and put them out in some storage great. medium or another. That is great. Um, I wanted to ask you real quick about, producing james you produced the stutter album correct right i love james i had tim booth on here last year um such an interesting guy talk about someone who's seeking for these other planes yes. of reality that album sounds nothing like what they would become it almost sounds in some ways like a violent femmes album is what it reminds me of a little bit they probably wanted to be more violent femmy than <laughs> than uh <laughs> Then I wanted we you know that it was it was a debut album, a official debut album, and a lot of times groups are very shy about exploiting the resources of the studio. They want it live. If you listen to the song "Black Hole" on there, you can actually hear Tim and me fighting over the faders to move this up or that down. You know, let me get over there. You know. They, they were not as open-minded 
as they should be. Perhaps I was more open-minded. You know, my job, especially with the uh, records I made over in England during the mid-80s, uh, The Weather Prophets, which I, I just love that, you know, Micro Disney, all of those bands, they were making the transition from indie label to major label. And I was the guy in the middle trying to kind of get a sensibility that it wasn't just like in the independent world, but also not changing them. Yeah. Uh, kind of being, you know, kind of the, 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 you know, kind of stuck in the middle, you know, again, I, I understand. I mean, we were like that with horses, you know, if you put a little reverb on something, you're ruining the artistic intent of this. Well, mm -hmm. you know, then they learned how, how to make records. And by the nineties, they were making, pretty professional records yeah but again there there's a you know being in the studio is like a psychodrama you're hearing yourself really for the first time especially a large studio and if you have more more than a day or two to make your record then you start thinking about it and we spent a lot of time talking which i don't really like you know it's just like you know whether this was appropriate whether you know, you could put a piano part on this. Oh, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a rear four piece, no piano. You know, I mean, yeah, we've all had those those conversations. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I understand that sometimes you shouldn't put that piano on. And sometimes it's going to make your record sound better. Mm -hmm. I always think that groups who want to go into a studio and record live, you know, you're not in a sweaty club. You're not playing 120 dB. You're in a very clinical situation where an artificial situation where if you want to record live and bands have called me up and said, you know, we just want to record live and choose the best takes. I say, well, what do you need me for? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, to encourage you yeah. to help you choose the best take. That's, that's not to me. Recording is an illusion. Yeah. It's an illusion of you being in that club and the sound pouring off the stage and the audience raising their fist and, and giving you energy. And if you can do that by doubling a guitar part or like creating some sonic depth, then yeah, that's what making a record is about. It's your, it's your perfect representation of what that song might sound like in a club yeah. or in a, in a concert hall or whatever yeah. you can. And that said, this is also, you know, you can make a very clinical and sterile record too, with, you know, trying to get everything perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, there is no perfection. So it's yeah. a delicate balance. And I've walked out with just about every band I worked with at that time, you know, to try to make sure that they kept their artistic uh, credibility, mm -hmm. but also that they didn't trap themselves mm -hmm. by that artistic credibility. That's you the, made... That's good. You made, I think, my favorite Soul Asylum album, too, Hang Time.
what was the oh approach for the progressive that. <laughs> yeah. the progressive uh that was the most complicated right we had to tune really? carl's bass after every note oh no he played so hard it was really fun they were great. Dave Perner's one of my favorite people of all time. Dan Murphy. I love that record. Not too many people have heard it. And I it. yeah, I mean, I do think that their later work, uh, Runaway Train and Everything is fantastic. I love them. But that's a really complex record. And yeah. uh, I'm just glad it's out there and that you discovered it. Yeah. I found it in a thrift store uh, five or six years ago. Nice. And, uh, and I thought, well, they're the runaway train guys. That's fine, but let's see what else there is to it. And I love that album. Great. Very, album. A very complex. I, I think of that as like a, a progressive, uh, punk album. Good guess. point. Yes. You know, point, it's really yes. very, the arrangements are very innovative and very, you know, I mean, it's, it's got a lot of depth that record after that, they kind of moved a little bit more into a simpler song form, which you know, it's obviously worked. It worked. It got him and on the I radio. I had everything. a dream that Runaway Train was being sung by Frank Sinatra. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I woke up. I said, wow, that's a good idea. Wow, How can we get it to him? <laughs> <laughs> okay. One more, one more of your produce, production things I want to ask about is Kristen uh, Hirsch. Right. Because um, one of my, my favorite solo song of hers, I think, is Your Ghost. Let him walk down your hallway It's not this quiet Slide down your receiver Sprint across the wire Follow my number Slide into my hand It's the blaze across my nightgown It's the phone's Which, yes, and you produced that, right? And Michael Stipe's on there? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I I watched over it, let's see. You know, okay. Kristen had a very good idea of what she wanted. Uh, we got Jane Scarpantoni up there to play cello. Uh, Michael uh, did his vocal. We recorded it actually in one of the weirdest studios I've ever been in. It was in Newport, Rhode Island. And if you open the back window of the studio, you looked into a horse arena where people were training uh uh you know steeplechase horses mm. <laughs> it's really bizarre but it was beautiful she's a great artist and yeah. she continues to be a great artist yeah. I, I really feel like i was lucky in my productions i wasn't like oh yeah your go-to metal guy or your go-to you know whatever i got to work with real artists um there's an artist i worked with called chris coanco um beautiful record I know a girl, her name is Pamela She must have been born with bad bones I used to see her limping down the hall 
wants to look into my eyes Told her on the phone that I couldn't care less about her Don't you know that you're kind of a pest, I told her I know it's cruel to make you cry But you know you're a fool to make me valentines She's a wallflower Waiting for me to come over She is in love with love I just loved walking around with him because he'd look at the play of a shadow on a building and uh, he'd point it out to me and all of a sudden I'd see it as a piece of art. I, I really got to work with very, very visionary artists yeah. and uh, it was interesting to be their best friend in the studio because that's what a producer is really. In the end, I can suggest a lot of guitar parts. I can try to you know say okay you know maybe if we do this or do that but in the end i think the most important thing for a producer is to be the mirror for the artist that they can look at themselves and say okay how did i do that take and and you know am i okay or you know can i be bolder um and really um you know so you know and you got to keep a sense of humor simply you know it's just like yeah we're making a record and it's hard, you know, cause you're cutting yourself into stone. Mm-hmm. You know, you're doing something that, that you're hearing yourself come back and perhaps you don't really seem like you sound like yourself mm-hmm. or how you imagine to be, or you recognize your imperfections or your perfections. And sometimes you're not bold enough to follow your perfections. And so you only see the, 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 the bad things. Mm-hmm. I, I worked with a girl once um, and, uh, you know, she thought she had to warm up for an hour before oh. she did her vocal. Okay. And then your voice is shot. But it was interesting because I'd be out there listening and she'd be trying this and trying this. And all of a sudden she'd be there. Yeah. It was amazing. And then she, she said, no, no, that, that's no good because she opened up the real emotion. And she, it was hard for her to face it. And uh, I've always remembered that. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, you know, it's sometimes you're very vulnerable in the studio. Yeah. And at that time, you know, I get on the talk back and say, uh, you know, hey, <laughs> well, you know, they're doing great. Or, you yeah. Know. They need that. They're, they're you know, they're uh, sensitive, highly sensitive, creative people. That's why they're artists. And course. especially with the artists I worked in. You know, yeah, I mean, again, okay. it wasn't like you're coming to me because I have the great drum sound. Right. I'm coming to me because we're going to have a personal relationship over the four to six weeks mm-hmm. that this record is. We're going to become best friends mm-hmm. and siblings. And then when the record's done, you're off playing it somewhere and I'm going to have a new best friend. That's right. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Last question. I don't know if this will go anywhere. I wrote it down in my notes. Okay. Very, very well to... prepared, by the way. Oh, thank you, Lenny. Well, I mean, it was easy. I've paid attention to Lenny K since I was 14 years old. So this was oh, nice. a lot of pent up stuff. I could do this for <laughs> hours. Um, I wrote down in my notes, the Johnny Cash story from the book, but I don't remember what the Johnny Cash story is. 
But whatever it was that I read, I thought enough of it that I wrote down Johnny Cash story. Can you tell us the Johnny Cash story? Sure, I'd love to. Okay. Uh, I had the privilege of writing Waylon Jennings' autobiography, which, mm-hmm. to be honest, is not just turning on a tape recorder and transcribing. It's a literary genre that is fairly difficult because you have to get the artist's voice in your head, and then you speak to about 20 or 25 of their close associates. You blend those stories so you see them through the artist's eyes. Uh, you do a lot of research. So, you know, if you need to say, um, I entered the charts and on the top of the charts was, you know, this song or that song. And mostly you get to know them. Uh, Waylon was so forthcoming to me. Uh, you know, we just ride around. He'd tell me tales. I'd have the tape recorder on. He'd, I'd ask him to repeat them because, you know, when somebody tells you a story, if they tell it to you different, I might be able to snag a couple, uh, uh, you know, new phrases. Yeah. I listened to the way he talked. He would say things like, well, uh, there was a couple, three things there. And I thought, ooh, never heard that one before. <laughs> anyway, it was a beautiful thing. We got along so well. I mean, I have to say, uh, he, he really, you know, as he said, he had already gone through two writers mm-hmm. before me. Uh, one tried to out-hip him, which is not something you do with Whalen. No, do and the other, you know, he kind of knew him forever and it was no challenge. But, you know, he loved having this New York hippie come down a little field and <laughs> You're, you've got to eat that hamburger and make sure it's well done because I know where it comes from. <laughs> anyway, he was great. Um, anyway, um, I'm out in uh, Los Angeles at a highwayman session. It's, of course, the Mount Rushmore of country music, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson, and Whalen. You know, I'm just a fly on the wall. I'm writing down little jokes that they bust their chops about. And it comes time for me to um, to interview Johnny there. So I go out to the uh, lounge and I set up a chair, one for him, one for me, put my micro cassette recorder in front of it. And then we talk for about, uh, and, and he comes out and when he goes to sit down, the chair is broken. And so we take it and we put it aside and then we bring over another chair and we continue uh, talking. Anyway, about 15 minutes into it, he's called in to do a take. So goes in to do a take and uh, comes out and uh, sits down and it's the broken chair again. So he just picks it up, flings it across the room, smashes against the wall, brings over another chair, sits down and says, "Uh, now where were we? <laughs> my Johnny Cash story. <laughs> That's just what you want to hear about Johnny oh, Cash. Oh, he was perfect, you know. Yes. I really, I really love that. Good. Now, now where were we? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Well, Lenny, I I love you a lot and like I said, Thank you, man. You're somebody whose life I think a lot of us wish we could live and aspire to have lived and have been fascinated with all along. Thank you for everything you've put in the world. It I appreciate it. So many thank you, lives you know. Better. I appreciate having this life. Uh, I feel yeah, very yeah. lucky. I know that beyond all the, you know, brouhaha about what I've done, really, in the end, it's about the work I do mm-hmm. each day. You know, when I get up and think, oh, am I going to work on the script for my radio show on Sirius? Or am I going to, uh, you know, I mean, whatever it is, I get to live the life that I've always imagined, kind of by accident or yeah. by purpose. I don't know but I'll take it. And uh, I just appreciate that you've 
gone down my particular rabbit hole and, and found some uh, strange things. And, uh, you know, you're, you're doing your work too, getting the word out there. That's a beautiful thing. I'm trying. Yeah. When you were just saying that just now, I was thinking, you know, we all have lives, dream lives that we Mm -hmm. lives that we wish we could lead, but almost none of us have the courage to do it, but you did. And, uh, that's why it's an inspiration. So anyway, thanks. All I can tell you is that because I didn't want to have those five cars in my driveway Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to have a career that, you know, you go up like a rocket and then down like a rocket. Patty and I always talk about the fact that we're just where we want to be. We don't want to be in arenas playing to a faceless amount of people. It's fun. We've done it a couple of times, but really we like playing in a theater where you can feel the intimacy and the, and the, you know, and, and, and take advantage of the moment when you're in an arena, you know, you have to pop the cork at the right time, set off that pyrotechnic or do all that stuff. You know, we, we're just happy doing our work and having a perspective on it. I, you know, I mean, I we like it. one more car, but that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, last question. Where do you put your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame statuette? Well, it's funny about that. I'm uh, Patty is in the Hall of Fame. I'm not. I um, thought you were. I thought the whole band was. Oh, shoot. No, no, you know, well, we've always had a complicated uh, band, you know, people coming in. Who's going to be there? To me, it's all about Patty, to no. be honest. Uh, I figured you and Ivan would be there for sure. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, but what do you do about Tony? Yeah, I mean, true. you know, JD, I mean, yeah. to me, a band is great, but when you're led by somebody and, you know, again, it's, it's not the Lenny K band. No. It's, 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 it's the Patty Smith band. And I respect that. And I like that. And it's how I view myself within her construct. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not egotistical. It's the same with my book. You know, I'm, I'm part of something and I celebrate that something, but really I'm, I'm happy to be able to do it. And, you know, to be honest, these awards are kind of like bowling trophies. <laughs> they are. <laughs> I got a couple of gold records from, you know, I got a beautiful gold record from France and, you know, Suzanne went platinum, you know, so they're up on the wall, but I just think, yeah, you know, that was the day I won that 300 game, you know? So <laughs> right. I, it's it's, that's just stuff. I really, you know, what I care about is, that moment in time when I'm up on the stage or, you know, hitting that perfect note, getting it to bend just where I need it to be or at the, at the, uh, Courtuiope as I call it. And all of a sudden the sentence appears magically in front of my thing. And I laugh, I think, Whoa, that's pretty, yeah, you're good boy. So, (laughs) you know, I, 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 I do things not to be awarded prizes, but to, but to do them. Simple as that. And I feel very honored and lucky that I can do that, which is beautiful. Good. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for everything, Lenny. All right. There you have it, Lenny Kay. I thought that was a great conversation, especially with a legend like that. You got to bring your A game because you know he's smart and you know he knows a lot. And so to have a deep conversation, you just want to like sit next to him in a bar or at dinner and talk about rock and roll for a couple of hours, which is what we just did, basically. We're so lucky to hear from people like Lenny. So, as everyone knows, our Patreon supporters are going to be in the running to win a copy of Lightning Striking. Uh, to be a first tier, which is all you got to do to be in the running to win swag like this, it's $2 a month. The link to, Patri- to the Patreon site is in the description of this show. 
If you want to support us, you just donate $2 a month, you set it and forget it, and it puts you in the running to win anything like lightning striking. If you want to go to the Tier 2 route, you would donate $5 a month, and with that, I tell you who I'm interviewing. You can uh, submit questions that might be included in the interview. And uh, you get to kind of peek behind the scenes and be a part of it. That's what we offer to you. I hope that's worth it for you. Um, I will be announcing this Sunday, uh, just picking a winner, winner at random and announcing who, and telling that person who it is. I want to close it out with Patty did a covers album a few years ago. It's really interesting and really good. And this is a song off it that I like. This is Within You, Without You, obviously, from the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album. Now, next week's guest is kind of a, uh, sort of like the West Coast version of Lenny, to be honest. Maybe a generation later, um, from the L.A. area, punk roots, multi-hyphenate, and just put out a solo album. So that, in fact, next week might be a twofer. And that's going to be the first half. And the second half is just a one of the most creative minds in pop music for the last 30 years, 30 plus years. So anyway, next week's going to be fun. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for everything. Thank you, buddy, for being my partner. You guys, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Um, we might be having a very special book club episode coming this weekend. Uh, it is not music related. Uh, so look out for that big name. All right. Thanks everybody.